Welcome to Wolves and Wheat Podcast, a podcast about the interconnections between biology and history. I'm one of your co-hosts, William. And I'm the other co-host, Balint. If you're interested in the topics we talk about and want to dive in further, you can find links and show notes on our website, www.wolvesandwheatpodcast.com. Or if you have questions or comments, reach out to us through email at wolvesandwheatpodcast at gmail.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Volume 1, Episode 3, The Crops That Feed the World In the last episode, we also introduced the concept of pioneer species, specifically grasses and legumes. But uh, what are pioneer species in general? Uh, What are their uh, most common characteristics? Yeah, so that's a good question. And a lot of their common characteristics are that they're they're smaller, fast-growing plants that mature really quickly. And a lot of them are the species that first grow after disturbances, such as the fires we mentioned in the previous episode uh, that they used, you know, for clearing and in a hunting strategy. So these species grow real quick after all types of natural disasters like that. Oh, for example, like a volcanic eruption when the lava flows downhill and then it solidifies and it provides like new ground for plants to colonize. Yeah, exactly. So what these first species do is they tend to break down like these rocky regions and stuff like that to to produce, you know, what we, you know, call soil and and recognize as soil. And they require less nutrients and time to mature than other plants. So they help to regenerate the nutrients and, like I said, uh, create the soil so that they create an environment where uh, newer and, and bigger secondary species can then start to to uh, colonize as well. Uh, you mentioned that one of the key uh, factors uh, that identify these plants are that they grow a lot faster than other species. What enables them to, to have such a fast growth rate? So there are a few factors that allow for this uh, faster growth rate, and one of them is C4 photosynthesis, which is something we'll cover in more detail in a supplemental episode. But basically what you need to know is it's a uh, more efficient way of carbon fixation so that plants can get uh, more nutrients and retain a higher efficiency of them uh, through photosynthesis. And then some of, some of the more morphological features are that these plants have longer roots. Uh, they also have root nodes with a nitrogen fixating, uh, fixing bacteria on them. And their leaves are uh, more efficient at transpiration. And transpiration is when the water moves throughout the plant and eventually evaporates from the leaves. And the reason why uh, transpiration became more efficient was, like we talked about in the first episode, due to the increased sea levels and the rainfall, which were the effects of the last ice age. And another thing that they tend to have in common is the reproductive strategy. So a lot of them tend to be wind-pollinating species. And if you think about it, these species are, are growing and these areas where there isn't much life, isn't anything really living there, so they're not going to really be able to to attract pollinators like insects and, and other things like that. And then some of the species also produce asexually. So, so these faster-growing colonizing species, what made them more enticing for humans to, to try domestication on them? Well, the reason why these species were so important to domestication is because these are the same species, as we mentioned, they grow after fires. So these are the same species that the humans observed start to grow after they had done these fires. Um, and they, they saw that they started to grow quickly. And, you know, when you're trying to feed a larger population, you need 
a food source that's gonna you know not take too long to mature before it can be consumed by by your population so these fast growing times made them extremely attractive to humans in terms of uh, starting them off on the path to domestication and a lot of these species that they saw that were growing the fastest happened to be grass and legume species. Did humans uh, experiment on all of the uh, pioneer species that they observed in these new habitats or uh, or they just picked the ones that looked the most promising? So I, it's most likely a little bit of both. Our records are obviously not 100% complete when it comes to this because obviously we have way more data on the plants that were successfully domesticated and the ones that we still use today. So we don't know 100% sure, but most likely there's a lot of trial and error that occurred. So if you think about it this way, not all the species they tried to domesticate were successful. And the staple crops we now know weren't necessarily the first species domestication was tried on either. So uh, we mentioned grasses multiple times, so let's talk about grasses. What should we know about uh, this plant family, about cereals in general? So I think the first thing that we should really understand and know about them is their uh, ecological niches and where they tend to dominate and grow. And these happen to be uh, steeps, prairies, and savannas. And these are you know, flat areas and what we call grasslands because that's where the grass grows the best. And one of the other important things is they provide uh, forage for herbivores. And the reason why this is important is because some of these species that they're plant sources for, uh, were food sources for those same animals were also food sources for humans. So the humans saw that these animals were, were eating these grass species. So they decided Hey, if these species are good enough nutritionally for the food that we're eating, maybe their food source can become a food source for us as well. Well, so this ties into uh, what we talked about in the previous episode, that humans often used fire to create these clearings that attracted larger bodied animals that uh, they subsequently hunted. Yeah, so it was, it was, it was, yeah, so it's kind of a cyclical thing, right? So... They were uh, using the fires to, to clear areas and to make hunting easier. And then due to these fires, these you know pioneer, new, gra- fast-growing species started to emerge. And then the animals were feeding on them. And then it, it just became sort of a feedback loop in that way. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned uh, specific characteristics that pioneer species have in general. Uh, which one of them are applicable to cereals specifically? So at least two of them are applicable to to cereal and grass species, and those are uh, root lengths. So, for example, wheat has root lengths of between one to two meters or about roughly three to six feet. And then oat roots can also grow up to about a meter and a half or four or five feet in length. So these long root systems are very important because the farther down in the soil they can reach, the more nutrients and more uptake that these plants can have. And then the other important thing is the uh, reproduction mode. So wheat, corn, rice, rye, barley, and oats are all wind-pollinating species. So like I said before, that helps in areas where there isn't too many living things. So you need to have a different um, method of of reproduction to ensure that that you're going to grow for future generations. All these things enable uh, grasses to grow faster. Uh, and previously, we talked uh, quite at length about the human aspect of domestication. So those four stages 
that human populations underwent from just harvesting plant material from the wild uh, towards more intensive and more planned uh, plant cultivation. And uh, so we talked about the human aspect, but how does this whole thing look like from the plant's perspective? Yeah, exactly. That's a good question to examine it from the plant's point of view or perspective. And so there are four steps to the domestication from a human perspective. And the, from the plant perspective, there's two steps to domestication. And the first step of this is plants acquiring what are called domestication syndromes. And these are what makes plants worth the cultivation labor costs. Because if you remember from the last episode, we talked about how hunting and gathering was actually less labor intensive than early agriculture was. So if the humans are, are putting forth all this energy and time, then the plants that they're cultivating uh, have to be worth it in the long run, obviously. Um, so some of these, these traits include um, things that allowed the crops to be reliably sown, cultivated, and harvested. And these traits are seen in a lot of domesticated tra uh, plants, but they all uh, evolved through convergent evolution. And what that means is that the trait, the same or similar trait arose in a lot of different plants and a lot of different species completely independently of each other. So they didn't start from one common ancestor that had this trait and then it spread out to different lineages. They all acquired these traits on their own. Um, and so then the second step is that these newly domesticated plants are selected for these improved qualities and these improved traits. And these end up being the seeds that are sown in the next planting phase and the next planting season. So then the next year for the harvest, the plants are even further on the selection towards domestication. So you mentioned some of these improved qualities. Uh, can you go into a bit more detail or at least some of these? Yeah. So... Like I mentioned, uh, they're called domestication syndromes, and in cereals, there are two extremely important ones. And the first one is the loss of shattering. And what shattering is, is when the seeds disperse from the stalk and, and are just taken by the wind and, and sown in different areas. And the reason why this is advantageous to the plant is because this allows them to diversify the niches in which they're growing to have a better chance of at least... Uh, a decent percentage of, of the plants maturing and going on to the next generation. So it's advantageous for wild grains, but it's extremely detrimental to cultivation since the crops need to retain their seeds long enough to be harvested. Um, but then there's the other thing where this can go too far in that direction with the loss of shattering. And if it goes too far, then threshing and harvesting is more difficult because the stalks become harder and thicker. So again, it, it increases the labor cost if you go, go too far in this direction. So there needs to be some kind of trade-off and compromise between having the seeds um, remain on the stock long enough to harvest, but not too long so that it makes harvesting more difficult. And then the second important domestication syndrome for cereals is loss of seed dormancy. And what seed dormancy is, is that the seeds all sprout during different intervals and different times of the year. So it's a way that plants can, can hedge their bet. So if the uh, conditions are extremely bad, whether it's a drought or overwatering and the seeds won't grow, if they all grow at the same, or if they all sprout at the same time and there's these uh, detrimental environmental factors, then none of the seeds are gonna grow and you have no future generations. 
So what the seeds do is, or what the plants do is they, they hedge their bets. It's like the saying, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, and for this, you know, obviously advantageous in the wild, but again, for humans, this is detrimental too, because if you're out there harvesting your crops, you want to be able to harvest all your crops during the same time period. You don't want to have, let's say a third of your crops growing, uh, being mature one month and then another third, the next month, another third, the month after, because that again, increases your labor cost. But as with the loss of shattering, this too can go too far in the other direction. Um, because in rice, there's a phenomenon that's called pre-harvest sprouting. And that's when the grains start to germinate while they're still on the stalk. And that means, means that these seeds are now no longer edible. So you pretty much just wasted an entire harvesting period. So uh, humans uh, had to balance uh, between two extremes and select the phenotypes that had the best of both worlds, so to say. And uh, one of the reasons why cereals were uh, chosen as uh, plants for cultivation was their nutritional value. Uh, can you go more into detail about what uh, what benefits uh, they provide they provided nutrition wise? Yeah, so cereals are extremely high in carbohydrates, so that they have a lot of energy for humans and also have a high caloric value. And they also have um, a decent amount of other essential nutrients like uh, protein, dietary fibers, manganese, phosphorus, and niacin, and also small amounts of, of other vitamins and nutrients that are extremely important to the human diet, um, even if they're just at small levels. And I want to talk a little bit more about dietary fiber um, for a minute because it's kind of a double-edged sword because dietary fiber is extremely important to the human diet, but at the same time, it leads to lower nutrient intake and absorption. Um, and so there's, there's different types of dietary fiber, and they all interact with all the different nutrients in extremely different ways. So I'm not going to go into all the specifics of that. But basically what you uh, should understand about this is that plants that are high in, in fiber, uh, even if they have high nutritional content and, and other nutrients, your body can't efficiently intake those nutrients as well. Um, but as I said before, fiber is extremely important to the human diet because it makes stools a lot more solid and easier to pass. And this prevents uh, constipation. And if you've ever been constipated in your life, you know how important that is and how important it is to have fiber in your diet. Yeah, but as we discussed in the previous episode, this, these benefits provided by consuming cereals also came at a cost. So uh, human diets became less uh, varied. So they also needed to counterbalance that somehow. Yeah, no, exactly. The human diet was less diverse and nutritionally balanced when they uh, made the shift from hunter and gatherer to an agricultural society. So that means that the humans had to now compensate and complement their diets in other ways uh, that they that they hadn't had to before. And I understand that legumes are actually a good complement to cereals. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the nutritional value of legumes? Okay, so legumes have a similar nutritional value as cereals uh, when, it turn, uh, when it comes to caloric value, but uh, it's slightly different because they have a higher protein content compared to their carbohydrate content. Uh, and what makes them a good counterbalance to uh, a diet that's mostly based on cereals 
is that the essential amino acid content of their proteins complements uh, the essential amino acid content of the cereals really well. So they, uh, legumes have a lower methionine and cysteine content, so they, they have less of the sulfur-containing amino acids, but they contain a lot more lysine, so more of the uh, nitrogen-containing amino acids. And so that means that the, uh, a combined diet of both cereals and legumes is uh, somewhat balanced. Obviously, it's not going to be as balanced as a hunter-gatherer's diet, as we discussed in the previous episode, but it's still way more balanced than just a 100% cereal-based diet. And um, what also made, made them useful for humans is that even the legumes that are not edible uh, by humans, such as vetch, uh, make excellent fodder for livestock. So as we discussed earlier, plant domestication and animal domestication kind of went parallel and hand in hand. So planting some of the species that humans could not eat themselves uh, was still beneficial for, for the animals that they domesticated. Okay, nice. Yeah, so now we understand the importance of legumes and how they complement and, and counteract the cereals in their diet. Um, so what kind of ecological role do they serve in their habitats? Well, legumes, just like uh, cereals, are a very widespread plant family. Uh, they can be found on all continents except Antarctica. And opposed to grasses, they are very rarely the dominant plant family in a habitat. They usually grow in smaller dispersed patches. And what makes their pollination interesting is that they're uh, usually insect pollinated, so they have actual flowers that you recognize. But each plant has both male and female uh, flowers. So when a pollinator, for example, a bee, visits all the flowers of the plant, uh, they very often pollinate uh, from one flower to the other on the same plant, which causes what's commonly called autopollination or self-pollination. So the plant pollinates itself. Uh, obviously, there's a chance of cross-pollination across plants as well, but that's less common. And another unique feature that makes them ecologically very important is that they contain these specialized organs called rhizobia, or also known as root nodules, that allow them to fix atmospheric nitrogen. So, can you go a little bit into what this nitrogen fixation is and, and why it's so important not only to legumes, but, but to the ecosystem as a whole? Without going too much into detail of the biochemistry and the background of that, because we will cover that in a supplemental, supplemental episode, the basic gist of it is that uh, there's a symbiotic relationship between the plant and certain types of bacteria, uh, which occurs in these root nodules, and the bacteria are able to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere, but this process is highly energy-consuming, uh, mostly because uh, nitrogen is a very stable molecule uh, in its diatomic molecular form. Uh, and it requires a lot of energy to break up the bonds uh, between the two atoms. So uh, in order to do this, the uh, bacterium needs lots of energy. And the symbiotic relationship comes from the fact that plants provide the energy to the bacterium, in, mostly in forms of sugars. And then the bacterium uses 
this energy to uh, convert the nitrogen atoms into more usable uh, nitrogen containing ions or molecules and then these will be released uh, back to the plant uh, mostly in forms of either ions or uh, amino acids and then the plant uses them to, to build its own uh, proteins for example okay yeah that makes sense so then does so the nitrogen fixation helps the intake of nitrogen in the plants themselves but does it also affect the nitrogen uh, concentration in the soil yes it does so it uh, so it happens in two different ways one is the direct one which is uh, legumes release ions mostly nitrate ions and ammonium ions into the soil so this is the direct uh, effect. Uh, this is also called ni nitrogen mineralization. The second one is indirect, well, indirect when the plant dies and then it's degraded by bacteria and fungi. Uh, the biomass of uh, legumes is generally very uh, well biodegradable. So it degrades very fast and really well. And all the nitrogen compounds that are released Many of them get into the soil and into the uh, adds into the nitrogen pool that is stored in the soil. Okay, yeah, that's that's really interesting. That that not only do the legumes themselves um, benefit from the increased nitrogen, but it also increases the the soil's nitrogen. So, how does this increase through the uh, nitrogen mineralization and the biomass degradation? How does this affect the growth of other species? Well, the very short answer would be that other plants that do not have this nitrogen fixing system only can only take up nitrogen from the soil. So uh, if, if your plant increases the nitrogen content of the soil, then that nitrogen can be taken up by other plants. And there's a really interesting article published only last year, so in 2019, by Wei et al. Uh, and it's a really long, 17-year-long study, where they measure the effects uh, of the presence of legumes on soil nitrogen content based on multiple variables, namely normal versus elevated nitrogen concentrations, normal versus elevated CO2 concentrations, and the effect of what they call species richness, which uh, is basically just the number of different species that they planted in each plot. So number of species per examined area. And they had a bunch of interesting findings. The most relevant uh, ones to us, the first one uh, is that legumes increase nitrogen mineralization and soil nitrogen content, not just in the plots that only contain legumes, but also in the plots that had a variety of different species uh, in these so-called species-rich plots. And in layman's terms, this means that legumes are really useful for uh, any type of crop rotation or shared crop planting system. So if you have a plot of land, uh, then a crop rotation system would be something like one year you plant uh, cereals and the next year you plant legumes. Uh, something like a mixed planting system would be something like you have this plot of land and in the same year you plant both types of species 
in in a system something like we plant one row of barley and one row of pea, and and in both cases uh, the legumes increase the uh, soil nitrogen content and thus also help the growth of uh, of other non-legume species. And the second finding, uh, which I found really interesting, so originally there was a hypothesis by the authors that they tried to confirm uh, or discredit, and it was that if you increase the atmospheric concentration of CO2, then that would increase the amount of nitrogen that's released by the legumes into the soil. So the reasoning was that if you have more CO2, then photosynthesis speeds up, uh, that inc uh, increases the growth of the plants, that increases the nutrient uptake from the soil by the plants, and then because the uh, soil nitrogen content is uh, starting to be depleted, the legumes would rely more heavily on the uh, nitrogen that they get from the uh, rhizobia, and so that in turn would also start to increase the soil nitrogen content, so kind of counterbalance the effect of the increased nitrogen uptake by the increased growth. But they couldn't really confirm this hypothesis, or at least the results weren't uh, statistically significant. So it's a pity because it really would have tied in nicely with what we were talking about in the first episode uh, about the incre increased atmospheric CO2 levels in the post-glacial period. Yeah, yeah, it is a little bit of a shame, but it just goes to show you that science doesn't always give you the answers you want, but you kind of got to just live with the results. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so now we've established the importance that legumes have in terms of uh, the dietary needs of humans and then also the overall uh, environment in terms of adding nitrogen to the soil and being used for animal fodder. Um, and earlier I was talking about domestication syndromes and cereals, and, and that's how we know that these plants were indeed domesticated. Um, can you discuss what some of these traits look like when it comes to legumes? Yeah, so actually domestication syndrome in legumes is kind of parallel to what you already explained for cereals. So one major trait that they acquired was the loss of seed dormancy. So for example, uh, for wild, the wild progenitor of lentil, only 10% of their seeds actually germinate in the next season. Uh, but uh, the domesticated version of either lentil or pea or any, any legume species really, uh, they germinate immediately upon contact with water. Uh, so that's uh, one major trait that they acquired. The other one is uh, what's called pod dehiscence or pod shattering. So legumes grow their seeds in these pods and uh, when the seeds mature, then the pods open up or they fall off the plant or both. And uh, this is called dehiscence. And obviously, this uh, it's similar to what you explained as shattering for cereals. So this makes the spreading of seeds better for the wild plant, but uh, it makes, uh, makes it more difficult for humans to actually collect and harvest the seeds. So humans uh, consciously selected for uh, mutant versions of these plants that didn't show this pod dehiscence, 
but uh, plants that had what's called inhiscent pods, which are pods that do not open up or do not fall down for, from the plant. And actually, these were uh, these became the dominant ones in the domesticated versions of uh, of most legumes, so pea, lentil, uh, kidney beans, and so on. The only notable exception is chickpea, where the wild chickpeas already have these inhiscent pods, so these pods that do not open up and do not fall down from the plant. And this actually made chickpea a lot easier to domesticate, as some, peop uh, some people uh, labeled them, uh, they were already pre-adapted for domestication. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. So there's a lot of overlap between what the domestication syndromes look like for both uh, cereals and legumes in terms of uniform growing time and making it easier in terms of harvesting for humans. So we've discussed some of these things and described what makes plants attractive candidates for domestication. Um, so are there any good counterexamples for species that wouldn't be good for domestication, just so we have kind of an alternate uh, viewpoint? Yeah, so an interesting thought experiment is that acorns actually have a high nutritional value. So their nutritional value is comparable to cereals. And uh, it also shows in the fact that acorns are a food source for many different animal species, such as uh, squirrels, boars, uh, certain types of birds, and also some insects. And actually there's uh, plenty of archaeological evidence that uh, many humans groups have consumed acorns throughout history in various regions, such as in the Levant, uh, in the east coast of North America, or there's also historical records from the Middle Ages that in times of famine, uh, humans actually turned to eating acorns when there was no, no harvest because of crop failure. Yeah, that is that definitely would be an interesting candidate to look at because, like you said, there's already proof that they've been consumed before. So then, if if they also had pretty high nutritional value, why why didn't we try to domesticate them? Like, why aren't people eating like uh, acorn flour pancakes and, and bread and stuff like that? Well, uh, there's multiple answers to that, and the first one and the most obvious one is that acorns contain lots of tannic acid which makes them taste very bitter. And it's not a trait specific to uh, oak trees and acorns, uh, but it's a general natural defense mechanism uh, that's exhibited by many different plants. Uh, so many plants accumulate bitter and or poisonous chemicals, also known as secondary metabolites, uh, to deter animals from eating them. Uh, so a very good example would be chili peppers, that produce a chemical called capsaicin. It's actually the chemical that makes chili peppers taste hot. And capsaicin is actually a very good insecticide. So it's a strong deterrent for insects uh, not to eat chili peppers. Yeah, so like the plants evolved this thing. It's like, hey, we don't want insects and other animals eating us. You know, we, we don't want, want that happening. And then the humans just came along like, hey, we like that. We don't mind that it's hot. You know, who cares? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I mean, it happened with a lot, lot of plants that humans actually managed to domesticate. So, for example, pumpkins uh, or almonds, 
both taste very bitter uh, or almonds. I think a divide version of almonds is even toxic. Uh, so a key step in, uh, in domestication and a common domestication syndrome for many plants uh, is actually the loss of bitterness or loss of toxicity. It's not really applicable to cereals and legumes, so that's why we hadn't, haven't mentioned it before. But for most plants, uh, a loss of toxicity or loss of bitterness uh, is actually a key step towards making the plant edible or palatable for human consumption. Yeah, that makes sense. So, like, through domestication, you can get rid of these tannic acids and, and like, the things that cause these bitter tastes, like in acorns. But without domesticating the plants, what could humans do to get rid of these acids? Because you said that there's examples of humans eating them before. So how did they get, get around that? Yeah, so um, there's a way to get rid of these uh, bitter chemicals, but it's kind of labor intensive and time consuming. So first, you obviously need to get rid of the shell of the acorn. And then you need to grind it down into flour. And uh, then you have two options. You can either soak it in water or boil it in water. Anyway, the water uh, dissolves the tannic acid and you can just get rid of it. But uh, soaking it uh, takes weeks or even months, depending on the exact species and the exact tannic acid content. And boiling uh, also takes hours, up to like eight, eight to 10 hours. Uh, and obviously, if you're boiling it, you also need to take care of the fire, bring firewood, etc. So either way, it's really labor-intensive and time-consuming. So that's why uh, many people only consume acorns in times of uh, extreme economic stress, such as famine. Yeah, that makes sense, exactly, because it's not like modern humans where we have, like, electric and gas-powered stoves and things like that, which makes boiling water a lot easier. And I'm sure they didn't have nearly as easy access to water that a lot of people enjoy nowadays either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And another aspect uh, is that if you think about uh, the plants that we talked about earlier, so cereals and legumes, uh, if you plant... Uh, plant them, uh, it takes less than a year until you actually have the results. So you plant a seed and then within a year you have a full-grown plant with seeds ready to be harvested. But uh, with oak trees it takes forever, uh, depending on the exact species, it takes 10 to 20 years for an oak tree to mature and actually start bearing acorns. And uh, no prehistoric farmer actually had the patience or the life expectancy to to wait around for an ideal version of acorn that's not that bitter uh, to come up and then they could start planting it and wait another 20 years and then uh, gradually decrease the tannic acid content. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're lucky with 10 to 20 years, you'd be lucky to live through one one of those harvests. And then you have to get lucky that you somehow found an acorn that was less bitter. Yeah. So, yeah, no, nobody's going to devote their entire life to maybe two two years of harvest. And then the other thing, obviously, oak trees are so much bigger than, like you said, these, these grass and, and fast growing grass and legume species. 
So they take up so much more space and resources that you could spend 10 to 20 years just trying this on the off chance it works, which is 10 to 20 years you could have been spent, you could have spent producing food that you know you can consume. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So with oak trees, people had two options, either the one you described that you, you know, wait around for decades and you're hoping for a slightly better result or uh, stick with the, the acorns that you find in the wild and then uh, take a lot of time and energy, try to process them and make them palatable. Yeah, so that, that actually ties into to kind of summarizing this episode because the things that made plants good candidates for domestication were pretty much the opposite of these acorns and oak trees because they had fast-growing uh, times and maturation times. Um, they had adequate nutritional value. They were also used as animal fodder, that animals that uh, were needed and later domesticated. And then one of probably the more important parts is the fact that these plants were way more responsive to human manipulation and selection than other plants. So these traits that humans found to be advantageous for them happened in the wild population already. And then they just took that and selected that once they saw that these plants could be manipulated in that way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that was a really good summary. So uh, we mentioned that we will cover C4 photosynthesis and nitrogen fixation in separate supplemental episode, episodes. So uh, just to close of this episode with uh, this announcement, uh, we will release these as shorter episodes uh, because we didn't really want to shoehorn them into this episode because that will shift the focus uh, more towards the biochemical details of these processes so we figured we would cover them separately and after we're done with releasing these supplementals we will start covering the domestication of specific species in specific regions and how these species start to spread from these core regions to wider areas and we will start with the fertile crescent so thank you for joining our show again and we hope you're ready for the next episode Hey, 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 hey. Wolves and wheat every day.